The Sisters Grimm podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Please, listen at your own discretion. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The most notorious serial killer in the nation, the Light Stalker. The Boston Strangler. The Son of Sam, the infamous Zodiac Killer. What's your favorite scary movie? Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Get away from her, you bitch! <laughs> It's 2020, baby, and I'm all about getting in shape and going to the gym. And my new favorite gym accessories are my Studio Tulv earbuds. We love Studio, and we've been talking about them for years. You don't have to be a gym goer to enjoy their Tulv earbuds. With their wireless earbuds, you can now bring your music wherever life takes you and enjoy unrivaled sound that makes you feel like you're center stage. They are extremely cute in their ultralight charging cases. You can take them anywhere. You can go to studio.com to get 15% off your entire order using code GRIM with two M's at checkout. That's right, Morgan. That's GRIM for 15% off. Welcome to this week's episode of the Sisters Grim Podcast. We are back for another episode. Yep, back in the attic. Back at it again. Back, 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 back again. If you've listened to our last couple episodes, we've been saying things that we see where we're sitting. And I think in the first one, I said I saw a picture of us. That picture has been knocked over. That's scary. What picture? Uh, It's like you can't see it from where you're sitting, but it's also... It's creepy. So this episode, as y'all have read, is about Arizona murders and deaths and killings, killings that happen. All of that. It's our Arizona episode. Like we have Illinois. It's our continuation of the 50 states. And soon we will move into other areas of the world that aren't America. Should we do? We should do province by province in, in, uh, you know, Canada. Okay. And we should. We already had a Canadian episode. Do, oh, you're right. We lumped them all together. Sorry, y'all. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways. This so, episode, Holly, <laughs> did you know that the Miranda rights were established in Arizona? I did not actually. Um. So when I was just like looking up stuff, I found out that in 1966, a Mesa man named Ernesto Miranda was arrested for the rape and kidnapping of a woman. He did not kill her, which is why he's not. My person, because he didn't kill anyone, actually, that I know of, that we know of. Uh, But when he was questioned, he was never told that he had the right to an attorney or that he had the right to remain silent. So he was just blabbing his mouth off? And he confessed. Uh, But this uh, obviously went against his Sixth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. And so he was retried without any of his confession, and he was still... Um, arrested and sentenced to 20 years in jail or prison rather. And then when he was released, uh, he was fatally stabbed in a bar fight and died. So Oof, um, just to, you know, I just wanted to talk about that. The for a sixth second. amendment uh, is the, is a right to a speedy trial. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the uh, 14th amendment is um, that one has to do with um, all persons born or naturalized in the United States 
and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. Okay, cool. Uh, no state yeah, shall his name was Ernesto Miranda. The privileges or immunities of a citizen. Okay, cool. And so after he was, this all happened, they created the Miranda rights, which police now have to say, which are, you have the, re- the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Anything you say or use will be used of court, used against you in the court of a law. You have, did I say the right to attorney? Uh, not yet. You have the right to remain silent. You have, wait, what was, what? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to remain, uh, I don't know. Here, Be quiet. <clears throat> you have the right to remain silent, or you are under arrest. Before we ask you any questions, you must understand what your rights are. You have the right to remain silent. You are not required to say anything to us at any time or to answer any questions. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we question you, and you have him with you during questioning. If you cannot afford That's a lawyer, system. one will be appointed to you. If you want to answer questions now without a lawyer present, you will still have the right to stop answering at any time. You will also have the right to stop answering at any time until you talk to a lawyer. Um, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can will be used to can you in the court of law. You have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with you while you're being questioned. Yeah. If you cannot afford it, hello. Yeah, you already said that part. So, yeah, uh, we've all seen Law & Order. We know what happens when totally. people get... But there are cases where if you are arrested, they do not technically have to read the Miranda rights to you. Really? Like what? Well, um, off the top of my head, shoplifting. Anytime you were arrested as a young ruffian they read you your Miranda no they did not yeah because they don't have to for certain things I think it's still I'm sure there is an actual reason why but I don't know yeah uh, we'll find out someday you guys so let's probably uh, because I was a minor that too possibly so let's let's get in who's going first you right (laughs) (laughs) okay so my first is the murder and disappearance of Diane uh, Kaidel. Her maiden name was Kidder, and Diane Kidder grew up in Peoria, Illinois, mm. and she worked at her father's grocery store called Kidder. Um, in 1956, when Diane was 21, she was in need of money because she had just gotten divorced and she was raising her daughter, who was two, Susie, and so she had to make money to take care of her. And while working at Kidder's, Diane met Jean Kaidel. He was described as not very good looking, but he was able to woo Diane because he was mm. a smooth talker. Okay. Um, the couple dated for a year before they got married, and then they moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where Jean began working in the ever-growing construction company that was uh, booming in Arizona mm. at this time, late uh, 50s. So Diane and Jean had three children together, Greg, Kelly, and Lori, and after being married for Almost a decade, Diane and Jean's relationship was starting to go poorly, and they decided that it would be for the best if they got a divorce. I didn't see anything into that, though, but in the 1960s, they did not have no-fault divorce, so Hmm. I wonder how they were going to do that. But any whoozle, on September 17th, 1966, Jean and Diane met up for dinner to discuss the final details of their home. Um, all of like those uh, things like who's keeping what and visitations with the children. The conversation went amicably by all accounts, and afterwards Diane dropped Jean off at his apartment. 
After she dropped Jean off, Diane went to the Amber Inn where she met up with Barb Marlin, a man that she had been casually dating mm. since her separation from Jean. Okay. So around 11, Jean called Diane's house, but the children answered and they said that their mother was still out. So he decided to go over there to watch the children and he ended up falling asleep on the couch. The next morning, Jean woke up and found Diane's car in the garage, but there was no sign of Diane. And Jean called the police and reported her missing. It was obvious that Diane had at least made it home and that it wasn't probable that she had left on her own accord because her car was there, her purse was in the house, and her car keys were on the table, and none of her clothes were missing, and Diane had no reason to run away. Um, Missing persons investigators couldn't understand why Diane would leave town without her kids because neighbors and friends and family members all say that Diane was incredibly, like, 100% devoted to her children, Mm -hmm. would do anything for them, and would, of course never go anywhere and just leave, leave them. them yeah up and leave them when that's crazy police, yeah um so police went to go and interview bob marlin the man that diane had had drinks with the night before but they unfortunately never got a chance to talk to bob the day after his date with diane bob suffered from a heart attack and died wow yep um so Two days after Diane went missing, Jean moved back into the family home to care for the children. Diane and Jean's youngest daughter remembers that her father's explanation for returning home was that her mother had run off with a boyfriend. He told his children this. He told family members this. He told neighbors this. He was like, no, she left town. You know, that was the story that he told everybody. Jean gave uh, the police a list of men that he said Diane had been dating since their separation, but they all led to nothing. One night, four months after Diane went missing, Jean went to a laundromat around 9 p.m., and while he was there, a fire broke out in the Kaidel's home. Mm. The house was quickly engulfed by flames, with the four children inside trapped inside their bedrooms. Dude. Does your story have fire in it, too? Yes. Crazy. It's very, very sad. Um, Susie, the oldest sister, went to her younger siblings' rooms to help get them out of the house. But Lori, um, she was running out with Lori, and Lori ran back to her bedroom for her Winnie the Pooh stuffed Mm. animal. Um, So Susie ran back after Lori, and Lori fell and got burnt really bad, and she was crying out for her mom. And Susie, like, laid on top of her Mm -hmm. and told her that everything was going to be okay. And that she was not going to leave her. Susie ended up dying protecting her sister, who had been burned so badly. She had third-degree burns covering 50% of her body. Wow. Lori's other sister, 8-year-old Kelly, also died in the fire, but her brother Greg survived. Um, Jean got to the house just as firefighters were pulling his children out from the fire. Investigators found a melted pot on the stove, the stove which was on, and the fire was ruled as accidental. Hmm. After Lori had been in the hospital for four months... What year was this? This was in uh, 1967. Yeah, 1967. Um, Whoa. Yeah. One of mine happens in... Oh, no, just kidding. (laughs) In the 60s? Um, 70s. So Lori... Um, after being in the hospital for four months, recovering from her injuries, moved into the home that her father had built. Her and her father uh, went to a funeral, 
because a kid from their neighborhood that they'd known growing up died in Vietnam during the war. Mm-hmm. And Lori was little. She was about five years old. And when she saw him she and her dad went up to the casket, she um, asked why he was, like, why he wouldn't wake up or, like, when he was going to mm-hmm. wake up. And Jean said, he wasn't going to wake up. He's dead. And they're going to bury him in the ground. And Lori began to freak out and crying and was, like, screaming for him to, like, wake up. Like, she had to be, like, dragged out. She was so upset that they were going to bury him. So this event triggered Lori to remember what she had seen the night her mother disappeared. What? Something up until now she had been repressing. In uh, 1993, 27 years after her mother's disappearance, Lori was finally able to talk about the night her mother went missing. She went to the police station and gave them a handwritten statement describing the terrible secret she had been hiding for 27 years because she was too afraid to come forward because her dad was psycho. Okay. Had and he died at this point when she started talking about it? Had he died? Yeah. No. Okay. Um, she wrote that she was coming forward with the memory she had repressed because of the extreme fear she had of what her father would do to her if she told anyone what she saw. Gene often told his daughter, I brought you into this world and I can take you out, which is a terrible colloquialism. It's just like such like an unoriginal dad. Well, it was people think it was originally said by now canceled Bill Cosby. Uh, But he said that on a 19 like 84, 1980 episode of the Cosby show. And this incident where he would say it to Lori happened way before. And so I was able to find out that the first instance of it was actually from a book from the 1700s. Oh my God. Yeah. Anywho, so back to the deeply sad story. Um, Lori said that when she was five, she watched her father beat her mother to death and bury her in the backyard. Damn. Um, seeing as Lori was only five at the time, she didn't know her mother was dead. And instead, she thought that she was sleeping. To the point of asking her dad one day if she could dig a hole in the backyard so she could give her mom something to eat. Oh. Sorry. It's okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is why she had such a strong reaction at the funeral of the man who died in Vietnam. She thought he was sleeping. And when her father told her that he was actually dead and was going to be buried, she realized her mom was dead, too. Wow. Yeah. Lori says that she was not confused about where her mother was. She was not confused about who had done it, hit, killed her mother. She was just confused because she was five years old and she couldn't tell the difference between someone who was dead and mm-hmm. someone who was alive. So police believed what Tori, I mean Lori, my horrible dad, um, told them, but they needed to make sure that it was more than just a story. So the lead detective obviously wanted hard proof. Lori told the police that her father had put in a concrete patio over the area he buried oh Diane my God. the day after <gasps> he had buried her. That's literally like American Horror Story season one, Murder House. Yeah. Don't do it. The don't, day don't after and no one the fuck said anything? Right. Right? Well, yeah. Right? Um... At the time where, when Lori came forward with this information, another family had moved into the house and police were hesitant to dig up someone else's backyard if it wasn't necessary, but Lori took them to the spot she remembered her father burying her mother, which was the corner edge of the patio. 
Why so, would he do that? That's stupid. He should do it right in the middle. Um, I mean, there's a picture of it, and it seemed, it was, like, kind of by, like, the side of the house and, like, a gate. Okay. Um, it didn't look weird, I guess, maybe what I'm trying to, like, it didn't look out of place. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so, because they had a picture of, like, when he redid it. Um, so police looked for over a year for technology that would help them see what was under the concrete without digging it up. Hmm. And they ended up using a ground-penetrating radar system that used, that's used to check disturbances and abnormalities in the ground. Interesting. Used by, like, geologists, mostly. So when they ran the radar over the concrete, it revealed a ground disturbance that was about six feet long by two feet wide. And it was in the corner of the patio exactly where Lori had said. The police then removed some of the concrete because they had re- reason to believe yeah, the body now. and only had to dig for 10 inches before finding a piece of a human skull. Oh and with my hours, gosh. they uncovered the entire skeleton, skeletal remains. Um, on the skeleton was a bra and a girdle, and around the skeleton's neck were a pair of women's stockings. What the fuck? Yeah, so. Lori obviously knew it was her mother, but there was barely any DNA evidence that they could test because of the bacteria that was in the ground. And how the fuck would you just know that there's going to be a dead body somewhere? Right. How would, like, that's, I mean, I guess that's circumstantial, but not really. She was a witness and she saw it. Yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, you can't just literally go, like, be like, oh, there's a dead body right yeah. there, and there be a dead body right there. Unless she killed her mom. She didn't. She was five. And I she know, was I'm kidding. <laughs> she was a wee little girl. So, um, uh, the teeth had been damaged, and I actually didn't know this, um, but you have what's called tooth pulp, which is usually protected by, like, the rest of your teeth. Interesting. And it's a really good source of DNA. Hmm. Also, her um, dental records had been destroyed because... Her dentist had died, and all of the her x-rays had been, like, shredded and gotten mm, rid of. That sucks. Yeah. Um, it was the 50, or 50s or 60s. They're like, no, we don't need these anymore. So they had to use whatever evidence they could, and they found a tree root that had been growing through the skull. And the root was analyzed at the University of Arizona by a dendrochronologist, who is someone who studies the age of plants. Cool. Yeah, dendro meaning, like, Tree or plant, and then uh, chronologist, obviously, meaning yeah. chrono- chronology. Chronology. So <laughs> he was able to determine that the skull had been in the ground before the tree was planted. The tree was planted about 15 years. No, the tree was like 15 years old, meaning that the body was buried before the year 1978. So this at least gave them a bit of a window. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. So for the, sure. Yeah, the bones were analyzed. And it was determined that the skeleton belonged to a Caucasian woman about 5'5", or 1.6 meters tall. Uh The pelvic bones indicated that the woman had given birth to at least two children. Whoa. um, And that, based on the bones, they were between, the person was between the age of 20 and 40. All of these things were consistent with Diane. Uh In an effort to get as much information from the skeleton as possible, seeing as they didn't have very much DNA... They used what's called skull photograph superimposition, where you take a picture of the person in real life and superimpose it onto the skull of the person that you think it might have been. And everything matched up. And what Dang. Is like the, 
one of the biggest signifiers was like in pictures. You know how people sometimes their canine teeth are kind of like little vampire teeth. Mm-hmm. She had little vampire teeth. Okay, and so they were able to see, um, at least in her jaw, like what was left that like it matched up with those yeah. little vampire teeth. So, um, police arrested then sixty-one-year-old Jean Kaidel and charged him with Diane's murder. Jean had told family and friends, like I said, that Diane had abandoned her children and ran off with a boyfriend, but Lori took the stand and testified against her father, described, describing what he had done to her mother the night that she was murdered. The night Diane went missing, Jean had called the house and asked the kids where their mom was and said she was still out, and he went over to wait until she got home. Diane came home around midnight, and she and Jean started fighting because he was obviously mad that, you know, she had dropped him off. And then from there, like, gone out with another guy. He was apparently very, very violent and alcoholic and a very cruel, cruel man. Mm. Lori said that he beat her mother constantly and he tried beating the children. And the ma- and Diane was like, no, mm-hmm. you will not touch my kids. Yeah. So, she, like I said. Very devoted mother. Not like a mother would be like, yeah, no, fucking hit my kid. Right. But, like, she was very, like, no. And so I'm sure because of that, she took a lot more beatings, which is really, really, really fucked up. Yeah. Um, but that's how it is a lot of the time. Yes. Very, very sad. So um, Diane and Jean were fighting, and that woke up Lori and her older sister, Susie, who went to the stairs to investigate what was happening. And they watched their father beating their mother And uh, the mom was, like, kind of trying to fight back, you know, like, trying to protect herself. But when she saw her daughters, she kind of let her defenses down, Mm. which Jean took advantage of and punched her in the head. And then she fell and hit her head super hard, which killed her. Probably. Um, Lori and Susie saw that their father had spotted them and they were scared and they ran and hid in their closet. Um, eventually when they thought the coast was clear and enough time had passed, they snuck out of the closet and looked out the window and saw their mother's lifeless body on the pool deck in the backyard. And they also saw that their father was digging a hole. Oh my God. Um, and then the next day, Gene paved over the spot where he buried his wife with concrete thinking he would never be caught. Like I said, Lori described her father, Gene, as an alcoholic and a very violent man who would often beat Diane. And in 1995, Jean Kaidel was convicted for the murder of Diane and was sentenced to life in prison. Although Dang. during the time of his trial, the death penalty was in place, it was not in place when he killed Diane. So he was not up for that. Um, Interesting. Also, Lori believes that it was her father who started the fire um, that killed her two sisters in an attempt to silence them so that they could never, ever tell anyone because oh he always God. would tell them. If you tell anyone what I did, I will kill you. Yeah. Um, Damn. And so the fire that was first determined to be an accident was later changed to arson. Lori sued the city of Phoenix for not investigating the fire more thoroughly, and she received a settlement of $5.5 million. Dang. And over the years, Jean repeatedly tried for an appeal, but on December 7th, 2004, Jean died in prison. Due to... Um, they did not say. Hmm. Let's say being a shithead. 
hope so. Yeah. Wow, that's a crazy story. It's a very crazy story. I watched it on Forensics Files, which is why I like watching Forensics Files because I like the forensics behind it. I feel that. Um, because it's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. That no, that's really cool. Infor- that they were, were are able to um, like look for things in the ground. I mean, that makes sense. They do it in um, Jurassic Park. They what what year dinosaurs. was that when they did that? Um, that was in like 1990s. Oh, okay. Um, it would have been 96 if she told them in 95 and it took them a year to just be able to find. So is 95 the year she that she went to the funeral and like found the body? No, 1995 was when she finally came forward and was able to tell okay. people what happened. The funeral happened after the fire and after, excuse me, she had gotten out of the hospital. Okay. Yeah, so that is the very sad story of Diane. That's crazy. Kaidel slash Kidder. That is a fucking crazy story. And now we're going to move on to another crazy story that also happened in Arizona, but this time Scottsdale. Uh, we've been there. Yeah. Both of my stories actually take place in Scottsdale. Both of mine take place in Phoenix. Wow. I guess those are the two major cities. Well, I, there's others. But anyways, so on the morning of April 10th, 2001. Tucson. F- <laughs> true. Tucson. <laughs> Tucson. Um, firefighters <laughs> responded to a large house fire. Uh, neighbors said that the house literally blew up, which was strange because it was a brick house. Whoa. Yeah. That's weird. Um, Neighbors also alerted the officials that there was the possibility that the family was still in the house. The whole, like, when they came to, you know, check and firefighters came to, like, burn it down because they, or not burn it down, to put it out because they didn't want it to go into any other Uh homes. Right. Uh, It was literally just, like, a big hole. Like, the house was, like, gone. Like the inside was completely, like, gutted, basically. Mm-hmm. When they went uh, to start searching the wreckage, they found three bodies. And what was also strange was that the bodies were all still in their beds, which usually during fires does not happen. No, usually are woken up by that sort of thing, and you get out, and you get out quick. Or at least you try to get out, and you're somewhere. Yeah. Something happened. The bodies were two children, Brittany, who was 12, and her little brother, Bobby, who was 10, and their mother, Mary Fisher. The children's throats had been slashed, and um, so had the mother's, and the mother had also been shot in the back of the head with a thirty-eight revolver. And then, like I said, her throat was already also slashed. Uh, officials say that their throats were slit so deep that they hit like the, her their vertebrae of like their yeah, necks. They're basically almost decapitated. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, one person was missing from all of this, and that was the father, Robert Fisher. So, when they started searching about the fire, the house had liquid accelerant all over the floors. Okay. Meaning, whoever wanted to burn the house down wanted it to burn down fast. Yeah. Um, there was also a gas line that had been very clearly broken and the way that it was broken was making it spew gas throughout the house. Um, and so what happened was someone lit a candle and gas first, what it does is it rises, but then once it gets so heavy in the air, it drops. And so 10 hours after someone lit that candle, it dropped, hit the candle and the whole house blew up. No. Yeah. That's 
that had that well so they knew what they were doing then obviously yeah robert fisher at the time uh before the murders worked as a respiratory tech at a male clinic he had also previously served in the u.s navy and people really described him as like a very like outdoors man like like ron swanson from uh parks and rec uh maybe i don't really i don't know does he hunt Oh, yeah. Does so, yeah. he hunt? I've never watched that show. We will. We're still in quarantine, y'all. So Robert's sister said that she could not believe her brother could ever do something like this. But friends of him who used to hunt with him said that they often saw his more aggressive side. After killing large animals, he would smear the blood all over his body. And there was also a story about, like, one time him and his friends were, like, fishing. And there was these other fishermen. And he, like, swam across the lake with a knife and, like made them leave or something like that. So he had a history of some weirdness. Correct. Um, Neighbors say that they also oftentimes heard screaming coming from the house, mostly from Mary to him saying like, I want to leave you like I'm too good for you. All of this kind of stuff. And then it was also known that Robert had an affair with a sex worker, which he got very sick and says that he got a UTI from. And after that, he basically was just like really wanting to like change his ways and become like a Christian and like prove that he like he really wanted to be a family man, even though a lot of people said that he didn't seem like he really was, which apparently he grew up in a household that was also similar, or at least so I read. Um, no one knows exactly why Robert would murder his family, but friends and family said that Mary was, like I said, planning on divorcing him. And he was like said once that he would rather die than like be like divorced. Like he never wanted to get divorced. When women break up with men, it's their most vulnerable time in their life. They're most likely to be hurt because especially if they're leaving an abusive husband, they're... You know, yeah, at more at risk. So, th- the night before uh, the house it caught on fire, because the house it basically happened at like nine or ten in the morning, uh, when the house like finally like exploded. But they think that probably around like nine o'clock at night before, or or no, like maybe like ten o'clock at night before is when he lit the candle and left, which means he had killed them. And then, like, did all of that, lit the candle, and left. Because the last time he's ever seen was taking out of taking money out of his bank in this uh, bank su- uh, surveillance camera, and that was around like ten to eleven p.m. Okay. Um. So ten days after the murders, police found the family car and the family dog whose name is Blue, in Tonto National Forest. Blue had, like, not left the car. He was just, like, around the car pacing and, like, really nervous. And, like, obviously, like, they they said that he had, like, burrs on his mouth, which meant that he, like, had gotten hungry and, like, had, like, gotten food. But he was, like, staying with the car. But they searched... Uh, this in this park is near Young, Arizona, which okay. is 100 miles north of Scottsdale. And it's apparently, like, has a lot of caves. Okay. And so Robert was never found. Apparently people don't think that they searched the caves well mm-hmm. because they were still like, he could have like went in there and hid. He could have went in there and killed himself. Like they didn't do a well enough search of the grounds. Okay. And also people think that like, maybe he like just hidden there and then left and that now he has like a whole new family somewhere else. Huh. 
He was never found, but on June 22nd, 2002, he was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Um, Robert is six feet tall. He would be 59 years old now. Oh, wow. Uh, actually, his birthday literally was earlier this April. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, and if anyone has any information, please call the police immediately. This happened 20 years ago now, almost to the day. Wow. That's really fucked up. Yeah. So that is the uh, Fisher family murders. All right. Well, we are going to take a little break. Are you working from home with thousands of distractions during the quarantine? Studios 12 earbuds will be your best friend. The 12 earbuds feature a graphene driver for enhanced sound clarity. They also have automatic pairing between the earbuds and your device. Toll features a microphone on both earbuds so you can use them for conference calls or FaceTiming those you can't see right now. Get 15% off your whole purchase using our code GRIM. That's G-R-I-M-M with two M's like I just said (laughs) at checkout for 15% off. That's one five. (laughs) You got that right, Morgan. What? All right, so back to what? back to Arizona Killers. You know what you said. Okay, so my next story is about Scott Filater and his wife, Yarmila Filater. Okay. Which is a very unfortunate last name. It sounds like a person who performs fellatio. Yeah, I was thinking it, but I wasn't going to say it. You know it's what I'm okay. saying? It's okay. Um, so Scott and Yarmila met in high school and then they got married when they were in college. Their marriage was described as happy and loving and they were faithful to one another and they had no history of abuse. They were very active in the Church of Latter-day Saints. They were both Mormon and Scott was a personal and family counselor um, and a teacher at the church, which was in Phoenix, Arizona, where they lived. January 16th, 1997, neighbors of Scott and Yarmila Filater, who were both 41 years old at the time, called 9-11, called 911 after hearing screaming and a dog barking coming from the couple's house. The neighbor looked over his fence and watched Scott stab Yarmila 44 times. Mm, Afterwards, he watched uh, Scott go into the house and change his clothes. When he came back out, he rolled Yarmila's body into the family's pool and held her head underwater. So she wasn't dead? No. Wow. He hid the murder weapon. He went back inside and he hid the murder weapon and his bloody clothes in a plastic um, like Tupperware container and put it in the trunk of his Volvo and then went inside to go to bed where the couple's two children were already sleeping. Scott remembers being abruptly woken by the police who swarmed his house after receiving the 911 call. The police found Yermilla's dead body face down in the pool and promptly arrested Scott. When police questioned him, he said he had no memory of killing his wife, and he said that he had been sleepwalking. So that was his excuse. He said that the last thing that he remembered that night was that Yermila was in the living room watching ER when he went upstairs to bed. What year was this? The 90s? This was the 90s. Okay. (laughs) She could have been watching reruns on Netflix, but she wasn't. Um, (laughs) So it was probably a Thursday night unless she was watching syndicated episodes. Yes. Um, So 
Um, he went to bed, and the next thing that he remembers is the police arresting him. During the interrogation, Scott said, obviously you think I did it. I don't know what makes you think that. And the officer was like, well, because you had a neighbor staring at you watching you do it. So the neighbor saw everything happen? The neighbor saw everything happen. Um, He said he had no memory of killing his wife, saying he had been sleepwalking. And he was like, my neighbor saw me push her into the pool. You've got to be kidding me. It wasn't like he was denying it. It was more like he was like in disbelief that he that it had even happened at all. Scott's sister talked to the police, and she told them that Scott had a history of sleepwalking. And one time when they were younger, Scott had started attacking her while he was sleepwalking, and when she tried waking him up, he Hmm. threw her across the room. Hmm. The authorities sent Scott to uh, the Sleep Disorders Service and Research Center, and um, experts studied his brain waves over a four-day period, and they found abnormalities that are associated with sleepwalkers. Researchers have found that sleepwalkers aren't capable of facial recognition, hmm. which is why they attack people they know. Because um, that's who is around them. Exactly. Um, there are several people with sleepwalking issues who have jumped out of windows, that have put their hands through glass, and even, in some case, are violent towards those that they love the most. Non-sleepwalkers move from one stage of sleep seamlessly to the next without waking up, but sleepwalkers can't transition from deep sleep into a dream sleep stage of sleep, so they become in a state where they're not fully awake nor fully asleep. Their brain is functioning as if it were awake and asleep. Hmm. So they kind of act out their dreams a little bit. Um, Due to Scott's sleepwalking, he couldn't be responsible for Yarmila's death because um, there had been another case where a man had been acquitted of killing his mother-in-law and attempting to kill his father-in-law while he was sleepwalking. But uh, was Scott innocent by means of not being able to tell the difference uh, between right or wrong at the time of killing? Or had there been a possible motive? Right. Yeah, you're right. It's still murder, but they're, they're, they're they tried looking for like a possible motive that mm-hmm. he could have had for killing her. Right. Um, police learned that the couple's marriage wasn't as picture perfect as those had made it seem, and uh, as I said before, Scott was super involved in the church, and Yarmila was not as into it as mm-hmm. she was, and she was starting to resent Scott a little bit for how much time he spent there. Um, and how he was just completely consumed by the church. Garmilla was actually thinking of divorcing Scott. She was tired of the demands of the church um, while Scott was fully committed. Scott wanted to have more children, and Garmilla did not. Mormon families typically have several children. Yeah. But Garmilla was like, two is enough. I'm not having any more kids. Um, just because it's like the Mormon thing to do. Plus, they yeah. had two teenagers at this time so it would have been a huge life change for them and yeah to have another baby to have babies again yeah um the prosecutors for this case hired their own sleep analysis and um they monitored scott's behavior in the night or they looked at the analysis of behavior of scott's behavior the night of the murder trying to look for any evidence that scott had been sleepwalking and this sleep analysis found nothing significant from scott's brain scans that were much different from the brain scans from non-sleepwalkers. For example, it had the same patterns of someone with sleep apnea, which is grossly different from sleepwalking. Right. Yeah, totally. Uh, Scott said that the night 
um, that night, rather, he got out of bed, and he got dressed, and he took a flashlight outside. Dr. Pressman, who is the prosecutor's sleep expert, says that a true sleepwalker cannot distinguish the difference between night and day, meaning Scott was able to tell that it was nighttime, he knew it was chilly outside because he put on warm clothes. Yeah, like and he knew to need a flashlight. And yeah, this is not something. This isn't something a sleepwalker would ever do. Would be aware of. Yeah, Scott's neighbor had told police. Um, like I said, he could see into Scott's house and saw Scott. Change. He made several decisions. Exactly. He changed out of his bloody clothes. He put his clothes and the murder weapon into a container and hid them. Yeah. He also bandaged a cut on his hand, which again shows that he was consciously aware of the fact that he was injured, which does not happen to sleepwalkers. The neighbor also witnessed Scott try to calm down his dog because it was really barking and it was agitated. And yet he says that he could not hear his wife screaming, but he was somehow able to hear the dog. The uh, defense's sleep expert claimed that co- uh, Scott couldn't hear the dog. He was just, re- this is the defense. Um, he couldn't hear the dog. He was just reacting to the dog jumping up at him, like, as he was walking to the pool. And they also said that as he was walking, because apparently something was wrong with the pool. And so the defense's theory was that um, he had been working on the pool during the day. And so when he got up at night, he went outside to work on the pool uh-huh. again. So... When he was walking to the part of the pool he needed to fix, he stumbled upon Yarmila's body, which he couldn't identify. And this is sort of creepy. The neighbor said that he watched Scott just stand over Yarmila's body and just, like, stare blankly at her, which could be seen as, you know, someone sleepwalking trying to see or a cold-blooded killer. Uh You never know. Um, And so they say that he saw her just as an obstacle and that was in his way. And so he just pushed her into the water. But if he was just trying to push her out of the way, why would he hold her head? Yeah, no, that no. Yeah. He motherfucking did it. And he motherfucking knows that he did. Oh, uh, no, no, no. Um, so <laughs> the jury had to look at all of this evidence presented and decide what to believe. In 1999, Scott stood trial for the murder of his wife, Yermilla, and he pleaded non guilty. Though there have been dozens of cases involving sleepwalking, the prosecution were very good at painting a picture of what happened the night of Yermilla's death. The fact that he knew to clean himself up and was able to successfully bandage up his hand, the fact that he knew um, that he needed to get rid of evidence that he killed his wife by hiding it in the trunk of his car, and the fact that when Scott got back to the pool, he was aware of the dog making so much noise and calmed him to not draw attention to himself. He was also able to tell that Yarmila was still breathing after he stabbed her in the chest and upper torso 44 times, so he dragged her to the pool and drowned her because he wanted her to die. Wow. The prosecutors, led by Juan Martinez, who went on to be the prosecutor in the Jody Arias case in 2005. Oh, yeah. um, He said that Scott's original plan was to kill his wife at night and have his children find their mother's body floating in the pool. Um, And he was going to say that he was she was killed rather by an intruder. Yeah. But those plans changed when a neighbor saw everything, which made Scott have to change the story. Can you imagine seeing all of that? And also, I, I totally was thinking, like, oh, I wish I hadn't done Jody Arias yet so I could do it for Arizona, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, but she's, that's a whole other thing. Um, Totes. So, the 
Dr. Pressman, the sleep expert, testified for the prosecution, and he listed 65 behaviors Scott exhibited during the crime that were inconsistent with sleepwalkers, noting that touching the cold pool water alone would have been enough to wake him up from sleepwalking. He also said that people who are sleepwalking aren't able to form new memories, and Scott was able to recognize that his clothes were bloody from killing his wife, and he knew that he had to get rid of them. Scott took the stand and testified on his behalf. Um, he said that he had gone crazy or that something in his head was broken. He did look very upset. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, you, you might have been upset, but that doesn't mean you didn't kill he her. Did, that he didn't do it on purpose. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he was emotional, but it was not enough for the jury to buy. And they found Scott guilty of murder in the first degree. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Yeah. Dang. He, um. Is the like neighbor? It's very like a rear Disturbia. window. Rear window too. I mean, that's <gasps> can basically. Can we watch Disturbia tonight? I thought we were gonna watch Argo. Okay, can we watch Disturbia tomorrow? Sure. <laughs> Let's. That's crazy. Do it. I know. That's. It's a really crazy story. Just because you know he was sleepwalking, or was he? Okay, so we just realized that the soundboard was off, so this might all be sounding really weird. And also, it's really raining, so that might come in. But yeah, my mic was down a little bit, so oops. oops. It should be normal now, guys. All right, <laughs> Literally, so, it's so much different. Why are we bad at this? It's been like learning. three years. <laughs> it's like, been three years. Anyways, we're learning on a new format, because usually we're using something else at home. Anyway. This is like the fifth time. Okay. We're going to move on to the final story, and that is the murder of... Bob Crane. Now, some people are probably older listeners would know Bob Crane as the wisecracking title character on the 1960s sitcom Hogan's Heroes, which was a World War II um, comedy. It was basically like silly antics against the Germans. And he actually got two Emmy noms from this show. Bob was born July 13th, 1928 in Waterbury, Connecticut. He began a love for drumming at age 11, and he played in his school's marching band, jazz band, and the orchestra. Get it, Bob. He also had an illustrious career as a radio personality in New York, Connecticut, and Los Angeles. And he also, I guess, was a disc jockey, <laughs> which I'm sure meant something very different in the 60s. A disc jockey? DJ? A DJ? Yeah, no, that meant he talked on the radio. That's what DJs were back oh, then. Cool. Disc jockeys worked on ra- at the radio station. Nice. They were literally <laughs> jockeys. Like, they got discs and let you Word. listen to them. Work. <laughs> so, like I said, Bob played Colonel Robert Hogan in Hogan's Heroes, which aired from 1965 to 1971. Um, after Hogan's Heroes ended, Bob did a few other acting things. And he also had the Bob Crane show, which aired on NBC, but it didn't do super well, so it didn't last very long. Sorry, Bob. But another big thing that Bob liked to do was dinner theater. Who amongst us does not? Which is basically like when you go to a show, but the show is also very centralized on like having a good dinner at the show. So it's not like a Broadway play where your only thing is going, you know, they're like oh, fun. I, yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. This is to the audience. Yeah. 
So in the summer of 78, Bob was touring a show called Beginner's Luck. He was in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he actually had an apartment. So wait, this was a traveling I guess. Or okay. no, 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 no. I think he was doing it in Arizona. And I think he was staying in his apartment in Arizona while he was doing this play as his oh, job. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. And so um, on June 29th, Bob's co-star of Beginner's Luck came to his apartment after he had failed to show up for lunch plans. She had a key to the apartment. Okay. Um, that is where she found Bob's body. At first, when she walked in, she didn't, like, she couldn't even recognize him because he had been beaten so badly. He was bludgeoned, actually. Oh, no. And so at first, she thought that maybe he was, like, a woman or the girl who found her, him. Rather thought maybe it was a woman because she saw all the blood. She thought it was hair. Oh, like no. a bunch of hair. Um. So, the murder weapon has never been found, but police believe a camera tripod was what beat him to death, and he had also had an electrical cord wrapped around his neck. Oh. Some people didn't know until his death that Bob liked to film himself sleeping with women a lot. After his apartment was searched, it was later discovered that several of the women who he had tapes with had absolutely no knowledge that they had been filmed. Uh, a man named John Henry Carpenter, not John Carpenter of Halloween, obviously. Right. That's why they gave the he- that's why usually serial killers have all three, three names. names. Yeah. He was one of his friends. He was a regional sales manager for Sony, which is where Bob kind of started learning a lot more about like camera equipment. And, like, you know, how to, like, shoot movies on his own because he really liked filming himself fucking. So he wanted really high quality Basically. fuck videos. Okay. Yeah. So when police arrived at the apartment, it was, it like, the whole place was totally darkened. Like, Arizona's so bright and sunny, but when you walk inside this apartment, it's black. All the curtains were drawn. Love that. There were cameras and film and videotapes everywhere. Like, there's photos of it. There's also, like, photos of his dead body. Um, but there's literally, As like... is usually the it's, case it's, with the, the apartment was definitely in, like, disarray, but not, like, because of the murder. Just, like himself he, he was not living a great life there um there even like in his bathroom he basically had like a black room or a, what's it called a dark room a dark room in his bathroom where he was developing like porn hmm. of all these women that okay. he was so he was with. very avid um crime the crime scene was muddied as some would say meaning that it had tons of people walking around in it and smoking in it Fuck. Well, yeah, Specifically, the, the woman who found his body, they let her be in there oh. while they were, like, questioning her and while she was, like, calming down and smoking a bunch. Yeah, I don't know why people in this time thought it was cool to smoke everywhere. Like, right. airplanes and hospitals and crime scenes. It was also of note that at this time... Uh, Come on, Morgan. I can see it in your... Not eyes, because they're closed. Scottsdale... Did not have a very large police force, and especially something this high profile because he was a celebrity. Right. They didn't have like the what they probably do now in terms of in terms of like how good their policing. Well, was. yeah, no, I mean this was what year? The sixties, seventies, seventy-eight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, come on, they weren't smart. Uh, the you right. know, yeah. So while examining all the records, police questioned John Carpenter. Again, not the one from Halloween. John Henry. He had flown to Phoenix on the 25th um, and then obviously drove to Scottsdale Scottsdale with a, in a rental car, uh, which was obviously searched 
and it had blood. Now, at this time, there was no DNA testing. Okay. But they did find that the blood type that was that matched the car also matched Bob's blood type and did not match any blood type of anyone else who had been in the car. So, like, any of the workers that worked there or the, the John Carpenter guy. Okay. So, it was type B, and that was for Bob. Type B for Bob. Um. Uh, like I said, they didn't have DNA testing. Uh, there was no sign of forced entry at Bob's home, and also nothing was missing. So basically, the Maricopa attorney decided not to file any charges against anyone because there was literally no evidence. Yeah. Um, and the case was kind of never solved. Which is crazy because of the brutal manner in which right. he was murdered and the fact that he was a celebrity. You'd think that... Right. You know, more would be done about that. So the evidence was reexamined in 1990. Uh, and Love the that. DNA found in the rental car was inconclusive. There was, however, photos that were taken. And when being reexamined, they noticed that it looked like there may have been brain matter in the car. Oh. But the samples of the brain matter had been lost. However, in June of 1992, 14 years Almost to the date of the killing, an Arizona judge ruled that the new found evidence was admissible and Carpenter was arrested and charged with the murder of Bob Crane. Uh, Bob's son testified in court saying that Bob was openly talking about ending his friendship with Carpenter and that he felt he was a bit of a hanger honor and that it was becoming Clinger. too much, almost to the point of like really becoming obnoxious. Like single white female? Yeah. Like scary? He also testified saying that the evening of Bob's murder, he had called Carpenter and ended their friendship, specifically. Jeez, what is it with men having their relationships canceled that makes them cancel? No, it's like they broke them... up. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, he got killed kind of for like the same exact reason as yeah. like these poor women. So he, like, they used to like sleep with women together a lot, too. Okay, I mean, it was a So, like, a lot of the videos had John, so that's actually how the police even found John. Oh, so, not to split hairs, but, like, threesomes or, like, group sex or, like, a little bit of... Oh. A little bit of all of it, I think. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Um, Carpenter was, uh, in the end, acquitted because there was no real evidence. The idea of the camera tripod being the murder weapon was only a theory with no real evidence. Carpenter's lawyers also argued that there were so many women who had been filmed in and out of that apartment, and there was a great chance that one of them could have killed him or an angry boyfriend. Um, angry boyfriend? Oh, an yeah. angry boyfriend of one of the girls. Okay. In 1998, Carpenter died, and he maintained his innocence until that day. Um, then there was another DNA test done in November of 2016 using a more advanced technique, but this was also found inconclusive and consumed the last remaining DNA left, making any future tests impossible. Fuck. Um, so Bob had been married twice, and he had children with both women. Or... Well, he definitely had children with the first woman who, um, one of the sons, the one who testified, testified in court, he has now later come out when pretty much after the other guy died, he came out saying that he's almost a hundred percent now certain that the, his second wife is who killed him. Oh, huh. Because she's the only person who got any money when he died. Like he hadn't left anything to any of his children oh. or his like old wife or anything huh. like that. It all had been left to this woman who they weren't even together at the time of his death. They were like divorced. He may have but never people updated. Say that they were um, getting back together kind oh, of during this time okay. too. Even okay. though he was obviously 
sleeping around. Well, he liked group stuff. Maybe he was polyamorous. Yeah. But to this day, still, no one, no knows, one knows who, killed, who Bob killed Bob Crane. That's very sad. I know. Dad, I was talking to Dad about it, obviously, because he would know, because he was TV alive shit. when it happened. Yeah. And um, he said that there also, like, I guess maybe stuff had came out of him being gay. I'm sure. And, like, them maybe, like, having an actual relationship together. The, but well, that's, I don't know if yeah. that to be real well, or not. I didn't I mean, maybe find they, any of that in my researches. Right. I mean, and they could have construed the fact that they were having group sex together, that they were maybe gay, that kind of stuff. And it was the 70s. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's where he got that from. Maybe. Maybe. Um... Like I mean, if you have it sex the in the same room with another man, you're automatically gay, even though we know that is not true. No, but I mean, you could definitely, in the 70s, definitely people could have speculated yeah, and, for and sure. thought that yeah. um, just out of ignorance. But I just cool, think that's so crazy still. that such a high profile person was like brutally murdered and we have no idea. I mean, Natalie Wood, yo, we got to talk about her sometime. Dude, But yeah, yeah it's... It's absolutely horrible. I mean, technically, we do know who killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, but in O.J. Simpson's little world, who knows? Who knows? So, that has been another rifling episode (laughs) of the Sisters Grimm podcast. We hope you all are staying inside, and if you are people who are down on your luck, I hope that this makes you happy? Aww. Question mark? Same exclamation I hope, point. Well, I just hope that, you know, you find things. I hope everyone's staying safe and happy and healthy. A lot of people have it a lot better off. They were saying it. this was an equalizer of a virus, and it is very, very not. People no. who have money are doing much better than those who are not. Yeah. And so those are the people that we need to support. And those are the people that are getting more sick. So everyone, stay in your house yeah even though a lot of states are opening things back up now there's a lot of people well apparently there was an island off of well part of japan but it was like it's an island and they opened up too soon and they had a really bad second wave and so that's kind of the model that they're going off of now Mm. because now in the u.s they're doing that and they're saying that the virus is starting to reach more rural areas yeah and because rural areas are I mean, uh, hospitals are so far and few, and they don't have the same sort of medical resources. And if it happens, it'll be pretty bad. So let's just hope it doesn't happen. Let's all just stay inside, y'all. Let's all stay inside. Don't hug anyone. If you go out, wear a mask. Yeah, people are not wearing masks. No, people are not wearing. I am very displeased with the number of people who were not wearing masks when I went Mm -hmm. out today. Is it today? Yes, it was today. It was today. Yeah, I had not been, hadn't been out of the house in a week, which I know is not something to really complain about, but honestly, it is kind of a big deal. It's kind of depressing. It's a little depressing. So, <sighs> All right, well, you can the follow episode. us uh, at the Sisters Grim Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Google. and Yeah, find, yeah we're just on Google. <laughs> and then Sisters Grim Pod on Twitter. And um, oh my god, you know how like there's AR for you can like, Google an animal and you can have yes. that be in real space. What if that was us? Like when you Googled us, you could like put <laughs> like, like augmented. Yeah, there was augmented reality. I would you want and that me. for anyone. Um, yeah, no, I'm very annoying. 
I meant like I don't want you to look at me. <laughs> oh, we know you're cute. Aww. Your AR version of yourself would obviously be the cutest version of yourself. True. It wouldn't be like you're, you know, just woke up. Currently. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. So that has been this episode. That's been an episode. That, mm-hmm.